Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, it's on page 852 in the Pew Bible. Friends, we are here today because Christ is worthy. As our risen and reigning Lord, He is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Worship, that very word, is an abbreviation of worth-ship, the state of being worthy. In Scripture, the first day of the week is called the Lord's Day. I like to call it the Lord's Day rather than Sunday because that's the scriptural term. It was the day that Jesus proved that He is the all-powerful Son of God who conquered death and who reigns as the living Lord forever and ever. Is He worthy? Indeed, He is. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the climax of the passion narrative in all four Gospels. Why? Because the resurrection of Christ is at the heart of the Gospel itself. The Gospel means good news. But without the resurrection, there is no good news. There is no Christian life. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no hope of heaven. There is no reason to trust God. Why? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead after promising multiple times that he would indeed rise, then we should pity him or poke fun at him. But we certainly shouldn't believe and obey him. But Jesus' biggest promise came true. He did rise from the dead, and therefore we can trust Jesus to keep every other promise that he has made. As we consider John's eyewitness account of the empty tomb, I pray that if you are already a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be encouraged this morning. And if you are a skeptic, that you would become convinced. If this text is familiar to you, it should be like watching your favorite movie for the hundredth time. It never grows old. But if you watch it carefully, sometimes you can pick up on details that you might have missed before. And if you're here out of a sense of religious obligation, or maybe because you didn't want to disappoint that family member or friend who invited you, that's okay. We're glad you're here. And I want you to know that God has a way of exceeding our expectations. So I only ask that you listen with an open mind as we open God's Word today and tell the greatest news that has ever been shared in the world. Again, our text is John chapter 20. John chapter 20, it's on page 852 in the Pew Bible. And I would invite you to follow along silently as I read aloud the first 10 verses of John 20. This is the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. 
So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Our Good Friday service ended in darkness as a reminder of the darkness that covered Calvary when Jesus died. On the first day of the week, Mary got up early while it was still dark, John says, and went to the tomb. She arrived at dawn and made a shocking discovery. The tomb was empty. This discovery and the narrative that follows points to one significant fact. Seeing Jesus alive was the last thing his followers expected to see. I want to impress that truth from John 20 on your minds and hearts this morning. Seeing Jesus alive was the last thing that his followers actually expected to see. Let's start with Mary Magdalene, the first one to arrive at the tomb that morning. As her name suggests, Mary was from Magdala, a coastal town on the Sea of Galilee. The other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all mention her as well. This woman had a horrific past. Jesus, at one point earlier in his ministry, had cast seven demons out of her. And from that point on, Mary Magdalene was fully devoted to Jesus. We read that she was among those who followed Jesus to the cross, weeping as they went. John tells us that Mary Magdalene was actually standing by the cross of Jesus, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and other women who were there. Jesus was buried just before sundown, when the Sabbath was about to begin, and the entrance to the tomb was sealed with a large circular stone that ran along a ridge. Here's a picture of the garden tomb in Israel. There's no stone, but if you look carefully on either side of the steps there, you'll see the ridge running along the base of the rock. And that's where the stone ran to cover up the entrance to the tomb. Here's a replica of a similar tomb with the rock in place. John's reference to this tomb is significant. He says, when Mary got to the tomb, she saw that the stone had been taken away. Now, this is interesting because the gospel accounts say that the, that the stone had been rolled into place. So we would expect John to say that the stone was rolled away. But he actually says that the stone was taken away. And that, that word for taken in the Greek implies that this stone was forcibly removed, perhaps even violently so, uh, removed out of and away from the ridge along which it ran. 
When Mary got to the tomb, she saw that the stone was taken away. John's reference to the time of day is also interesting. Mark says that Mary came very early when the sun had risen. Luke says that it was early dawn. And yet John says that Mary came to the tomb early while it was still dark. It's not easy to put the pieces together. Mary would have started out for the tomb when it was yet dark and having arrived at the tomb at the break of dawn. I believe that John is the one who points out darkness because if you read John's writings, he often presents a contrast between light and darkness, not just physical light and darkness, but as it represents also spiritual light and darkness or um, the presence of understanding or the lack of it. And I believe that John is saying that Mary came to the tomb early while it was still dark in a sense to convey that Mary herself was still in the dark as to what had happened. And the light doesn't dawn on her until much later in the narrative. Mary assumes that grave robbers have stolen the body of Jesus. Despite being a capital crime punishable by death, grave robbery was still a very common crime in the first century. Thieves would break into tombs, especially those of rich people like the ones you saw there, in order to find valuables and to take them away. Jesus was buried in a tomb purchased by a rich man. Isaiah had prophesied that 700 years earlier, and that was fulfilled by Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man who let Jesus be buried in his tomb. So yes, it was common for grave robbers to steal valuables, but it didn't make any sense for them to steal bodies, especially if they were trying to get away. But this shows how far the thought of Jesus being resurrected of Jesus actually being alive was from Mary's thoughts. It never even entered her mind that Jesus would have been raised from the dead and had walked out of that tomb. Now when you think about it, Jesus had prophesied, he had predicted, he had promised that he would suffer and then rise from the grave. If Mary had truly understood the scriptures and remembered what Jesus had said and, and her, had her faith been strong in that moment, she wouldn't have brought spices and ointment. She would have brought party favors, maybe a cake, and other means of celebration coming with confidence and expectation along with the other disciples saying, today is the day, the third day on which he is to be risen. But Mary, a lot of times like us, despite what our Savior says, we don't clue in. Sometimes we lack faith and we don't come expectantly to see what God has for us. She is completely perplexed and can only assume that Jesus' grave has been robbed, that his body has been taken. So she runs in great panic and distress to tell Peter and John about it. So let's talk about Peter and John. After Mary tells them about the empty tomb, they run there themselves. John says that they were running together, but then he outran Peter and got there first. Now, is John just kind of like inserting a little statement to, to brag? Yeah, we were running together, but I outran Peter. No, John's not bragging. John's not proud. He doesn't even introduce himself by name. He simply refers to himself here as the other disciple. 
what is John doing? I believe that John is simply reliving in his own mind these events as they really happened, as he records them, as he writes them down. They're very vivid in his mind. They're running to the tomb together, but then John, being the younger disciple, eventually outruns Peter. And throughout this account, John emphasizes that on the part of Mary Magdalene, on the part of Peter, on the part of himself, this is all eyewitness testimony. Did you pick that up? Verse 1, Mary saw that the stone had been taken away. Verse 5, John saw the linen cloths lying there. Verse 6, Peter saw the linen cloths lying there, along with the face cloth. In the original Greek, John actually uses a different word in verse 6 for saw than he does in verses 1 and 5. It looks the same in English. Mary saw, Peter saw, John saw. But in verse 6, when he says that Peter saw, he uses a different word in the Greek. He actually uses the Greek word theoreo, which means to view attentively, to perceive with the eyes, to consider. The New Living Translation captures the meaning well in verse 6 by translating it this way. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed uses the word noticed instead of saw. That's a good word. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. And the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. That is to say that Peter saw what John did, but Peter is also processing what he has seen. How is it that the linen cloths are lying there undisturbed? Why is the face cloth folded and set apart from the linen cloths in a place by itself? No grave robber would take the time to fold up a face cloth and put it to the side. What's going on here? Do you see what's happening? Peter isn't just seeing things. Peter's noticing things. He's processing them. He's considering what's going on. Theoreo, theorize. Peter is trying to put the pieces together. While he's doing that, John actually comes to the point of faith. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. But look at verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You see, verse 9 is critical because it shows the basis of John's belief in this moment was not the prophetic scriptures, though they should have been. It was actually the physical evidence before John's very eyes. Luke tells us that it was only after Jesus appeared to his disciples that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Luke 24, 45 and 46. It was the evidence of the empty tomb, the linen cloths, the, the folded headpiece. It was those things that was enough to convince John that Jesus was no longer dead. Luke says that Peter went home marveling at what had happened. 
Likewise, John says that the disciples went back to their homes. So Peter at this time is perplexed, but he's processing things. John has already believed, but he doesn't fully understand the significance of what has happened. And this sets the stage for Jesus' appearance to the disciples, which we'll look at in just a moment. But first we return to Mary Magdalene. At this point, she is still in the dark. She is still deeply distressed. Look at verse 11. The first part of the verse says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Now remember the sequence of events. Mary had come to the tomb early while it was still dark. She sees the stones rolled away. She assumes that thieves have broken in and stolen the body of Jesus. She runs back and tells Peter and John what has happened. They run to the tomb to see for themselves, clearly outpacing Mary. There's no record of her being there when they're there. And as they're headed home, Mary's now just arriving back at the tomb, still distressed, still in the dark as to what has happened still weeping. That word for weeping in verse 11, that Greek word does not indicate a soft cry, but agonizing sobs. Mary is completely overcome with grief. Verses 11 and 12. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, but as she wept, she stooped to look inside the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Here's a picture taken inside the garden tomb. Imagine what it was like for Mary to look inside and see on the bench an angel sitting at either side. The early church fathers considered this to be very theologically significant, and here's why. There were two cherubic angels, two cherubim, that sat on either side of the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And the Hebrew word for mercy seat is derived from the Hebrew word for atonement. Just as there were two cherubim on either side of the mercy seat, so now there were Two angels on either side of the bed were Jesus, the light of the world who had given himself as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, had been laid. Another interesting thing is that God, speaking about the mercy seat way back in Exodus 25, told his people, there I will meet with you. Now keep that in mind as we consider verses 13 and 14. Look at what happens next. The angel said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. You see what happened here? God the Son meets with Mary at the mercy seat. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. 
the resurrection is the furthest thing from Mary's mind. She turned, and it's Jesus, but she doesn't know it's Jesus. She assumes that he is the gardener. I mean, who else would be there so early in the morning asking such a question? The notion of Jesus being alive hasn't even entered her mind. Not even yet. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. (laughs) I don't even know how to read that scene. Can you imagine? One word. Mary's own name. Spoken by the greatest person she had ever known. And her life is forever changed. Remember what Jesus said way back in John 10? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. My sheep... Hear my voice, and I call my own sheep by name. Mary. Mary knew Jesus' voice. And the text says, she turned around. I love what Dale Bruner writes in his commentary at this point. I wish I could read the whole quote. It's too long. Let me read you a portion of it. He says, and I quote, A second before this turn, there is a woman in the deepest human despair in the agonizing presence of unconquerable death. A second after the beginning of this turn, there is a woman in the deepest possible human elation in the presence of the death-conquering central figure of history. The rush that must have come over this woman in her two-second turn is unimaginable. She is the first person ever to experience the personal presence of the risen Lord. End quote and amen. All four gospel writers attest to this fact. Something that they would never do if they were trying to fabricate a story because a woman's testimony did not hold the same value as a man's in the first century. It wasn't even admissible as evidence in a court of law. But this is how the events actually transpired. And that's why all four gospel writers wrote it down as such. It also shows that Jesus affirmed the dignity of women and the value of their witness. Of all the ones that he could have shown himself to first, he picks a woman that was ill-reputed in society, one who had been possessed by seven demons. Jesus is like, yeah, I'm going to pick her to be the first eyewitness of my resurrection. Isn't that just like Jesus? In fact, Jesus has Mary deliver the news to the other disciples. Verses 17 and 18. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. (laughs) I can see Mary doing that. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now some translations have verse 17 as Jesus saying to Mary, do not touch me. But that doesn't really convey the essence of Jesus' words. After all, eight days later, Jesus would tell Thomas to actually touch him, to touch the wounds in his hands and in his side. I think what's happening here is that from Mary's perspective, she's already lost Jesus once and she doesn't want to lose him again. So I think she's trying to hold on to him like there's no tomorrow. Jesus is saying, look, let me go. I'm not going just yet. (laughs) I've not yet ascended to the Father. Then he says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. That That is to say that thanks to Jesus, all who believe in him now have a new relationship with God. We can know him as our Father. John said in the very first chapter of his gospel, verse 12, that as many as received Jesus, who believed on his name, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. There is no greater privilege, there is no greater status than to be forgiven of your sins through faith in Christ, be reconciled to God and adopted into his family forever. My guess is that Mary wasted no time in delivering this news to the disciples. She probably ran back as fast as she could. Maybe she would have even outrun John at this point to tell them the incredible news. Look at verse 18 once again. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I was thinking that this had been reported in a newspaper Think the Jerusalem Post, the headlines. I just imagine in the biggest font, bold font possible, front page headlines, the next day, just those quotes, I have seen the Lord. Perhaps the disciples were wondering if they would see the Lord. After all, Jesus had told Mary to tell them, I am ascending to your father, to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Perhaps they were wondering, has Jesus already ascended? Have we missed seeing him? No, they hadn't. Look at verses 19 and 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I know scripture is all truth, but that word glad strikes me as an understatement. (laughs) I think there's probably no accurate words to convey how they felt when they saw Jesus. This could also be translated overjoyed. Still an understatement. Glad, overjoyed, thrilled beyond words. They were glad when they saw the Lord. I titled this message, Post Tenebras Looks. It was a great motto of the Reformation. It means after darkness, light. After darkness, light. 
2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When Jesus appeared to the disciples, he said, peace to you, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. For the rest of their lives, the disciples spread the good news about Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his atoning death, his burial, his triumphant resurrection. In fact, every one of these men chose rather to die than to not, rather than to deny what they knew to be true, that Christ had truly risen from the dead. They saw this with their very own eyes. They knew that Jesus is the living and reigning eternal Son of God, the eternal Savior of all who believe. So as our Easter celebration continues, and as this message draws to a close, I want to ask just two simple questions. Number one, have you believed that Jesus died and rose again for you? That he died for your sins, just as the scripture said? That he was buried and rose again the third day, conquering sin and death, just as the scripture said? Have you embraced him? Have you clung to him in a spiritual sense as Mary did? Have you embraced him as your Lord and Master by turning from your sin, trusting in Jesus alone to save you, turning over to him as your Lord and Master the reins of your life, saying, you're running things from now on, not I? That's what it really means to believe in the Son of God. So have you believed the good news that Jesus died and rose again for you? And the second question is, if you have believed, are you broadcasting the good news? To broadcast is to spread widely, to cast broadly over a given area, like seed in sowing. And that's exactly what Jesus refers to when he talks about spreading the truth of his word as a sower scatters seed extravagantly, broadly, abundantly, generously everywhere. It falls on all kinds of soil. That's what Jesus tells us to do with the truth of the gospel. Having embraced God's truth ourselves, we now extend God's glory because we know that he is worthy. And we want others to join in that salvation and in the praise of God's blessed Son. And when people ask why we talk the way we talk, why we behave as we behave, why we live the way that we do, we can simply respond with joy because Christ is risen, just as he said.